when risk is elevated and liquidity is scarce, uh, financial accidents are, are, are more common. Welcome to Wealthian. I'm Wealthian founder Adam Taggart. We're now in the final quarter of 2022, a year that will go down in the history books as one of the worst ever for stocks and bonds. And the outlook from here remains highly uncertain. So how are the big players, those managing tens of billions of dollars in client capital, allocating their portfolios right now? And what may the regular retail investor learn from their strategies? To find out, we're fortunate to welcome Chris Brightman to the program today. Chris is the CEO and CIO of Research Affiliates, and along with Rob Arnett, is co-portfolio manager on the PIMCO All Asset and All Asset All Authority Funds and the PIMCO RAE Funds. To give you a sense of the impressive scope of Chris's work, as of June of this year, $143 billion in assets were managed worldwide using investment strategies developed by Research Affiliates. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. All right, Chris. Well, look, um, a lot to get into with you today. Um, certainly a lot going on in the financial world right now. Um, if we're, it's okay with you, I'd just like to start with a very high-level question. I ask this of all of my guests at the beginning. It's really just a jumping-off point. And that's, what's your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Well, we're obviously in uh, a very challenging time. Uh, having said that, I'll tell a, a quick uh, anecdote. In uh, the early 1980s, when I went to work for uh, a large bank in the investment department, my boss at the time said, Chris, one day when you're writing regular commentary, as I'm sure you will be, you always want to start with now is a particularly difficult time to uh, provide investment advice. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm cognizant that uh, while today looks like a particularly uncertain time uh, when we're assessing financial markets, it's always an uncertain time. <laughs> There's never one who writes the uh, newsletter saying this is the easiest time ever to invest. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, uh, just to dig a tiny bit further, when you say it's a challenging time, what are some of the key reasons you say that? Well, um, Volatility is elevated. Uh, so if you look at uh, the VIX or if you look at implied volatility in bond markets or you look at the deviation of uh, even very safe treasury bond prices from a model of uh, where they should be, uh, we find uh, that uh, we don't have enough liquidity in the system uh, and that um, uh, risk is elevated. And when risk is elevated and liquidity is scarce, uh, financial accidents are, are, are more common, uh, including uh, you know, large downward moves in capital market prices. Uh, and of course, uh, the macroeconomic environment, as all of the listeners know, uh, resembles uh, nothing that uh, any investor that's uh, younger than me and uh, you know, I'm in my 60s, has any memory of. Uh, those of us who, who lived through and were professionally active in the 70s and 80s may remember uh, high and volatile inflation environments uh, along with uh, geopolitical con conflict and domestic uh, political polarization. But you really have to go back 
uh, uh, 30, 40 years to find a historical precedent today's environment. On the other hand, and this is crucially important, yields are much higher and prices, particularly outside the US, but even in large pockets of the US stock market are much lower than we've seen in decades. Now is actually a very wonderful time to begin or to increase your accumulation of financial assets. Uh, so if you're uh, uh, somebody who's employed and able to save, uh, in your 30s or 40s or even in your 20s. Now is just a wonderful time to be able to buy capital assets at discount prices. All right. Um, some really great points in there I want to dig into. Um, <clears throat> let's well, let's start first with the one where you said that that you know you have to go back a good ways, many decades to get to an analog. Um, we've mentioned this a couple of times on this program that there are very few people who are still professionally active um, in the financial world who actually have direct experience investing in this type of environment. So, you know, it sort of suggests we, we almost have the wrong team on the field in terms of the, the, the expertise and experience for the game that's currently being played. And even those like yourself, even who, who you know, remember way back when, it was at the very beginning of these people's careers, and the vast majority of your professional experience has been in a world where, you know, it's been disinflation, it's been an inexorable rise in asset prices. So even even the people that have experience, it's it's pretty dusty. It's a long time ago. Those are muscles they haven't really exercised in a long time. So um, uh, it, it just it, it's notable here that that not only are the the times relatively unknown uh, to folks that are here, but uh, we, we we just don't have a lot of like really good experienced leaders to follow here because even the most of them, it's, it's, it's you know, again, like I said, sort of pretty dusty knowledge. Um, and then second on the prices, um, so uh, you said yields, you know, yields are up. So certainly bond prices uh, are, are better than they've been. Um, and I think for treasuries, and I do want to talk to you in a little bit about, about the treasury market, um, it's like the worst year's performance for treasuries for, I don't know how many decades, but it's a long, long time, right? So you can make a pretty good argument that treasuries may be, you know, I, I either mispriced here or at least due for some sort of rebound at some point. Um, I hear your point that, that prices are lower, especially outside of the U S for, for all sorts of financial assets. Um, and I'm going to ask you a little bit later as to your thoughts on sort of how much further the market may have to go down. And of course, nobody knows exactly where the bottom is or whatnot. But it sounds like you're saying if you've got a long-term horizon, uh, not a bad time to start increasing exposure. I'm, I'm guessing that you are sort of indicating more of like a dollar cost average type of approach as opposed to like, hey, these are great prices, load up the truck. Yes. Uh, for many, many years, friends, family, acquaintances have asked me for personal financial advice. And for many, many years, I provided uh, the sort of uh, boring advice that nobody really wants to hear, which started with, you probably should save more. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, you should have a well-diversified portfolio of very low-cost uh, index funds and regularly rebalance. And of course, nobody's looking for that. They're looking for the hot stock tip that uh, they can get rich quick. Um, and uh, But more generally, they just don't feel that that advice was actionable enough. And so I, at one point, and that point was specifically when my kids, and uh, my kids are in their 30s uh, now, uh, it, it was time for them to begin to seriously start saving and investing for their future. So I uh, gave them uh, uh, advice and I share that with other people. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a very viable approach. What I said was, take your checking account and link it to a brokerage account. Open a brokerage account. Uh, uh, there's many good places. I suggested Schwab, but there's lots of other uh, places. Vanguard would be fine. Um, and create a monthly transfer. Let's start it out with $1,000. I think you can afford $1,000 a month. Uh, and start off with a portfolio of 10 different ETFs. I pick the number 10 because I have 10 uh, uh, fingers and toes, and we have a base 10 number system, and 10 is a nice round number, but you could use eight or you could use 12, or you know, it doesn't, there's nothing magic about 10. Uh, ETFs that represent a diversified collection of uh, asset classes. Uh, I picked uh, uh, about 50 50 riskier assets or less risky assets, or, uh, um, or, or, uh, uh, 70, 30, there's lots of different ways you could interpret it, but it, it begins with the most risky assets of equities, uh, 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 U.S. stocks, uh, developed ex-U.S. stocks, uh, and emerging market stocks. That's a reasonable group. Somebody might want to put in U.S. small stocks. Uh, I didn't, but that's three uh, equity asset classes. Other risky assets I added were REITs and commodities. So that's a pretty full array of uh, uh, equity-like risk assets, and then another five uh, asset classes, which are uh, uh, more diversifying, uh, including um, long-term treasury bonds, uh, TIPS, treasury inflation-protected uh, securities, you know, mm. uh, real, bond, real rate bonds, um, high-yield bonds, bank loans, and emerging market local currency bonds. Now you might say that the real safe part of that portfolio is just the long treasuries and uh, uh, tips. And so you could say it's 80-20 or you could, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of different ways to assess that. But uh, I, what I can tell you is it has a volatility that is not too far off of a traditional 60-40 portfolio, but it has uh, a yield and a long-term expected return and a simulated long-term past return that's better than a traditional 60-40 portfolio because it has better diversification and higher on average risk among the individual asset classes. The wonderful thing about diversification is that you can take a portfolio of more risky assets and combine them together and the overall portfolio is 
not as risky as the average risk of the underlying asset classes. Okay, this is sort risk, of the yeah. first lesson you learn in a uh, portfolio management uh, uh, class. Um, and then I tell them every month, go on to your, log on to your brokerage account, look at the new $1,000 that has arrived there because you've created an automatic transfer, and then look at the value of all of the 10 ETFs that you own. Whichever one is the lowest, put the new $1,000 into the single ETF that has the lowest current market value. So your dollar cost averaging over time, you're also pursuing a value approach. Whatever has done the worst, that's what you're buying. You're buying what's the lowest in market value. So, uh, and whatever is doing the best, that's not what you're putting the money into. And then I tell them, continue to do this for about the next 50 years or so. <laughs> And you will have accumulated a very comfortable amount uh, uh, of assets to retire. And then when you retire, uh, reverse it. Figure out, you know, how much wealth do I have? How many months do I uh, plan to live? Divide one by the other. Then that's the amount that you want to transfer from your brokerage account to your checking account. Set up that automatic transfer. Go into the portfolio. Look at your ETFs. Whichever one has the highest value, sell that one by the amount of your required monthly transfer. And uh, uh, there's your decumulation plan. Now, um, I mean that quite literally that that is a incredibly sound uh, investment approach. But more important is the general principles that are uh, uh, embedded in that, including uh, 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 rebalancing, dollar cost averaging, wide diversification, avoidance of uh, emotional short-term timing, et cetera. And uh, I for those people, for those people, when when prices fall, you know, if you're if you're in the accumulation phase, when prices fall, uh, uh, that's great. You're buying your new purchases at lower prices and higher yields. And if they fall some more, even better. You've got even better opportunities. So, I, so again, for people who are accumulating wealth for the future, now that's not the baby boomers, uh, but if you're accumulating wealth for the future uh, um, over a long time horizon, the further markets fall, the higher interest rates go, the better it is for you. Uh, Chris, I, I love that. And we've actually been talking on this program a fair amount of late of sort of the advice we would pass down to people starting off earlier in life uh, in terms of, you know, our financial system does a pretty, or sorry, educational system does a pretty bad job of teaching financial literacy and whatnot. And there's a real hunger out there, both amongst younger people and amongst parents who want to guide their, their children who are now entering adulthood um, on these types of tenants. And you just gave a really simple, but really powerful model here. And yeah, I, I, I love kind of the key tenets of it. Um, and even earlier on, you had said something about the importance of having income in an environment like this. So, you know, uh, I, I imagine you would you would be on board with this too, but is, is focus on strengthening your earning muscles, your savings muscles. Um, what I like about your plan, it's, it's sort of the whole pay yourself first, right? Like get that thousand dollars, just know that it's always going into your future fund. 
and then figure out with what's left over how you're going to make your your bills and payments and stuff like that. And that might force some frugality on you, but even that has some real benefits. Um, but let me just add to that. Yeah, very good piece of advice. Uh, I don't remember. It certainly wasn't mine initially, but every time you get a raise, allocate oh maybe a third or, or or a quarter of the raise to increasing your monthly transfer to your future account, as you say. That's a great point because sort of human nature being what it is, if you don't do that, it gets real easy to justify spending that extra third, that remaining third on additional expenses, right? Oh, I need a bigger house or a bigger car or whatever, right? So yeah, anyways, this rewards or encourages diversity, portfolio sizing, rebalancing, um, fee reduction. Uh, as you said, it, it's, it's, a, it's a programmatic plan. So it sort of takes the emotional whipsawing that oftentimes forces investors to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Um, dollar cost averaging and also using the time value of money uh, over the decades to really build wealth. Um, super easy to understand. And also, um, it, it it's not mutually exclusive with other types of investing, right? You're just basically saying, take a thousand a month and do this. If you end up making more than that and have the ability to put more away and want to pursue something different, great, fine. But just run this in parallel and even if your other stuff doesn't have the ultimate return you hope it does, you've got this thing just sort of chugging along away in the background. Yeah, I mean, some people enjoy going to Vegas. If you want to open up a Robinhood account and uh, uh, get in with the mem stock crowd uh, for fun and excitement and entertainment, uh, that's great. But, you know, kind of budget for it like you're going to Vegas. All right. Well, look, um, we kind of flipped this interview around. I tend to like to get to these sort of um, practical recommendations at the end after we've done all the macro stuff, but I love that you front loaded it here. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump back into the macro and then hopefully we can kind of work our way back to this, this part of the discussion. Because um, sure. one of the things I'm very interested to hear, obviously, is because you are responsible for so much client capital, um, how are you allocating it today? Uh, if it's different at all, and I'm assuming it probably is from from this very sort of set it and forget it type of, of plan that you just mentioned. Um, all right. Well, look, as I mentioned in the intro, you manage client capital and a lot of it, uh, tens of, of billions of dollars worth. Uh, and then even more than that is influenced by the the work you guys put out at, at uh, Research Affiliates. Um, I Basically, the question I want to ask you here is there's a lot of big trends that are shaping the financial landscape right now. And I'm curious, what are the biggest ones that you're monitoring and what are they telling you about the future? Um, we can we can tackle this in any order that you'd like, but maybe we should start with inflation because that's really been the big game changer over the past year. Um so I'd love to kind of get a sense of what your outlook is for it. You know, do you see it moderating over the coming months? You know, will the Fed be able to get it back down to its target of two or three percent CPI? Um, or are we in a new secular era of just higher inflation going forward from here? The um, inflation that we see, make no mistake, was a policy choice. This wasn't an accident. It was uh, a policy choice. And I have great sympathy for the motivation and the intentions that got us here. I think there was a, a big mistake, but mostly just um, 
the difficult consequences of responsible actions. So let me uh, explain. The big, the reason we have inflation is that we printed, printed, and then I say printed, but of course uh, uh, we don't use printing presses to create money much anymore. It's all electronic, but we electronically created lots of new money. And this is a crucial point. We then wire transferred all of that money into people's bank accounts. Uh, so hundreds of millions of bank accounts in the United States we injected huge amounts of newly created money. Uh, and not just to individuals, but to many corporations as well. Uh, nonprofits, all, all manner of bank accounts suddenly were stuffed full of newly created dollars. And that creates inflation. And if you, if you, if you, I, I, I could go on in, in macroeconomic theory and talk about uh, 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 MV equals PQ, mm -hmm. but I would just say, imagine your eight-year-old self asking your parents, well, if that's where money comes from after looking at the ATM machine, wh wh why can't the government just send everybody $100,000 a month? If we sent everybody $100,000 a month, then we'd all be rich. Well, of course, we wouldn't all be rich because the amount of goods and services that are available to consume isn't increased by transferring money into bank accounts. And our consumption is limited by the aggregate amount of production. Uh, but what we had was a, was a dire uh, a crisis, a pandemic. And in that pandemic, there was a fear, and I think a very reasonable fear, that the uh, human suffering that would result from that pandemic would fall disproportionately on the worst off in our society. And in, in an effort, a humanitarian, well-meaning effort to prevent disproportionate suffering uh, from the those least able to uh, uh, afford it, uh, we distributed lots of cash, lots of new money to everybody's bank account. And it wasn't very targeted because you can't target it. The government doesn't know that much, right? The government can't figure out who are really the people needed it and who are the people that don't need it and just target it to the people who really, they, they don't understand that. So they just wanted to flood everybody with money so that the, the, the people who really did need it mostly got some of it. And then lots of other people who didn't need it also got it. And that's what we did. And it was a humanitarian impulse and I get it. But during the pandemic, we closed down lots of parts of the economy, not just in the United States, but the whole world. So the aggregate amount, the aggregate supply of goods and services was going down. There's no way that we can all not reduce our consumption if the aggregate amount of production has all gone down. So simultaneously with uh, aggregate real production of goods and services declining, we flooded the system with money. That's why we got inflation. And the problem that now we have to deal with inflation and inflation tends to be self-perpetuating. Uh, once you've got it up and going, you know, the uh, uh, prices are going up, fuel costs are going up, uh, 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 cost of food, groceries is going up. 
then people expect to have higher wages. Uh, and because people get higher wages, then uh, they can afford more. They can afford more in nominal terms, of course, right? They're not getting more. They're not actually getting more gallons of gasoline. They're right. not getting more groceries. They're just paying higher prices. And that gets some momentum to it. Um, I said there was a mistake and there was a mistake. And it was the, the mistake of the Federal Reserve. And it was this Fed saying, and, 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 they, and they were very clear about this. We're going to change the way we do monetary policy. We're not going to forecast future inflation. And when we forecast that future inflation is at risk of rising, perhaps because employment, un, unemployment is lower than its natural rate. And, and nobody knows what that natural rate is, just like nobody knows where the equilibrium level of interest rates are. These are uh, a theoretical concepts, not easily measurable uh, quantities. But, but the Fed had always been, had a forward looking, they, they, they have models and forecast where things were going, and then they would act preemptively and ahead of time, because of course, there are long lags in, in policy. So famously, the Fed is supposed to take the punch bowl away from the party before the uh, uh, party gets too raucous. Well, what the Fed said was, no, we're not gonna do that. New change, new policy, until we see actual inflation rising, not just a forecast of inflation rising, until we see inflation actually rising well above target, and we see employment uh, uh, um, at risk, we're not going to tighten. So what they did was say, we're going to err on the side of having inflation get out, get, get, get above target. And what did we get? They, they erred on the side of inflation getting above target. Now, I want to go back and, and emphasize, don't be too cruel to the Fed, because that was a small part of the deal. The big part was flooding the world with money as the humanitarian response to the uh, pandemic. That's really what caused inflation. Now, uh, you, a next question you might ask is, where do we go from here? And I think people are underestimating the probability of more persistent and higher inflation. You might say, well, look, the Fed got, you know, retired its silly word transitory and everybody gets that it's not transitory. Well, I'll tell you what, everybody gets that it's not transitory except pricing in the bond market. You know, break even inflation, the 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 bond market's tradable price for where CPI is going to be is, you know, like about two and a half for uh, uh, over the next 10 years, below three for the next five years. Meanwhile, Inflation's running at 8%, higher in many countries outside of the United States. Core inflation or trimmed mean inflation or any kind of uh, uh, model you might use to say what's the underlying trend of inflation excluding the most volatile and, uh, and outliers is running at five or six. Core CPI, trimmed mean CPI, uh, core personal consumption expenditure deflator, the Fed's favorite measure. These are all running at five or 6%. Um, and there's no, there's no downtrend that you can see uh, in the core measures. And so how do you, do you think that we're gonna get 
to two and a half inflation over 10 years or 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 2.75% inflation over five years when these core measures are running at five or six. It doesn't seem plausible to me. Uh, now, I guess the one plausible answer is we're about to have a huge economic contraction. That's where I was going, but yeah. <laughs> and I think people, uh, I think that people are not yet ready to understand that both can happen. You can have a pretty nasty recession and run at higher than 2% inflation for another five years. All right, so sort of a stagflationary recession is what you're saying. I mean, saying. I think we're, we, we're, we, are, we are not there yet. We're not at stagflation because we have, we're not in a recession. Uh, uh, well, they might, you might come back and people might date it to it, but you know, the very, very low level of unemployment is a pretty strong indicator that we're not in a recession. You don't have, you know, 3% uh, unemployment with a, uh, uh, a, 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 as a nasty recession. And as a rule of thumb, it's probably going to take about a 1% increase in the unemployment rate to get inflation down from one about by a percentage point. So if you want to get core inflation running at five or six back down to two, you're probably looking at 3%, maybe even 4% rise in the unemployment rate. And that's the policy conundrum, right? Is the Fed going to continue to tighten and continue to hold interest rates up? And, and I would say they probably need to take them at least to the level of core inflation, if not higher than the level in core inflation. So, I mean, 5% has got to be the absolute floor uh, that uh, 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 we're going to see um, short-term interest rates go to. And it very well could take a 6 or 7% uh, uh, rate to get uh, inflation to actually start coming down. And then when it does come down, you're going to need to see, again, I think most of the macroeconomists that I talk to, former Fed officials, et cetera, uh, that's kind of where they think the Phillips curve is, the trade-off between inflation and unemployment, is that you need about a 1% increase in the uh, um, uh, unemployment rate uh, for each 1% decline in, in, in core inflation. So, I mean, you know, I, I think we're looking at you know, the Fed, another 75 basis point rate hike, probably as we go through 2023, they're going to need to do even more to get inflation down. But then unemployment's going to start going up. Then we're going to see month after month after month after month of jobs numbers with negative growth in jobs numbers, more people losing their jobs than new jobs being created, unemployment right. going up. And then the Fed's going to lose its nerve. The Fed is not going to get inflation all the way back down to 2% because they're going to look at it and they say, well, we got a dual mandate and we're not going to force the unemployment rate up by 3 or 4% in order just to hit this target of 2% inflation. They're not going to do that. And so we're going to get back to uh, sort of Greenspan era late 80s, 90s kind of monetary policy that was called opportunistic disinflation. So we're not going to force 
the result of getting all the way to 2% inflation. We'll live with 3 or 4% inflation for a while. And when the next recession comes along and that naturally depresses inflation a bit, we'll try to lock that in and wait over, I don't know, a decade or two of natural uh, recessions from other causes and then try to step it back down to the uh, 2% inflation rate. So uh, yeah, we, we're, we're going to have a big step change up in inflation. Well, we already have. People just don't recognize that it's not transitory. Again, uh, the Fed retired the word, but the bond market hasn't retired the pricing of inflation as being transitory. Got it. Okay, great answer. So you you basically say, yes, we are more or less in a new secular era. Um, Fed will probably get inflation down to around three to 4%, like you said, and then try to stair-step it down over a long period of time right. using other recessions that happen as sort of the mechanism for doing that. Um, all right. Opportunistic disinflation. Opportunistic disinflation. Uh, great term. Um, all right. So got tons of questions coming out of that. Uh, I guess the first one is, is uh, you think that interest rates could potentially go as high as 7%, um, which I'm well, sure- could potentially go much higher. Uh, there's great bounds of uncertainty around these things. I, um, I used to trade bonds. I used to sit on a trading desk with you know two telephones and a bunch of screens and trade bonds. And one of the bonds that I traded was the 14s of 2011. So there was actual treasury bonds, long-term treasury bonds. These were actually callable, the treasury doesn't do that anymore. But there were long-term treasury bonds issued with a 14% coupon. So in the realm of what can happen, recognize that the treasury once was issuing long-term bonds with 14% coupons. Per percent, yeah, exactly. So even though it feels inconceivable to many of us, uh, it's happened before. Seven's but, not the cap. Right, but, but this goes to the nature of my question. Very different economy <laughs> today uh, than we were back then. Uh, much more, there's much more debt out there and a much, much more indebted economy and an economy uh, to borrow a phrase from Dylan Grice, who I interviewed last week, um, that has more or less become addicted slash dependent to zero cost capital. <clears throat> and now now capital is not as cheap anymore, right? right. So <clears throat> is there a level at which on the way to 7% or maybe it's 7% uh, that the economy just can't handle? It literally just starts buckling under interest rates this high. Yes. And um the really uncomfortable part of that, answering that question, is that when you run the models, and they're not very complicated models, it's just, you know, you look at uh, the primary budget deficit and the level of real interest rates and uh, what's sustainable. You know, uh, sometimes people will use uh, uh, terms like, you know, fiscal headroom or uh, um, uh, another one is a fiscal dominance. Uh, this just basically gets to the point where what's going on in financing of debt constrains your fiscal policy. Uh, and that's about 5%, meaning not for, I'm not talking about what could happen for a year or two. We could certainly see six or 7% interest rates for a year or two, but we can't settle into a 
level of cost of debt service, the prevailing interest rate of about above about 5% with the sort of 100% debt to GDP that we have uh, without, you know, going to, you know, three or 4% real growth in, in the economy. And that is just not going to happen. I, you know, demographics kind of guarantee that there's no way we're going to get back to 3% real growth in GDP uh, um, and so, yeah, five percent as a sustainable, not not for a year or two, but for 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 sort of secular uh, uh, a cost of debt. We 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 can't afford that without restructuring our fiscal policy, meaning meaning greatly higher levels of uh, taxation to fund current levels of government spending, let alone the future higher levels of government spending that people want. They don't all say they want it, but their behavior indicates that they want it. Yeah. So then this gets to the point of sort of like the Fed's going to hike until it breaks something, right? You hear that out there all the time. Earlier, you you sort of seemed to intimate, hey, the Fed's going to hike until unemployment starts coming up to a point where it makes the Fed nervous. <clears throat> um, what are the what's the potential for something breaking? Beforehand, I mean, you, you talked very early on about uh, liquidity being really low in the treasury market. You know, Janet Yellen is beginning to sort of send out uh, little warning signs. Um, I would think there'd be many things that would break before the U.S. Treasury market, but but who knows? I could be wrong. Um, but do, so my point is, is 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 we're 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 kind of on our way uh, to four percent with these planned rate hikes right now, um, and you think I'd we say could be five. I'd say well, the well, yeah, rate I, hikes are pretty close to five. If we yeah, were talking I, a month ago, we might have said four. Yeah, I just think what the Fed has said it's going to do, we already know it's going to get good above four. And then we imagine they're going to continue doing it for the reasons you just mentioned. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, we're already kind of making that momentum to five, five plus. Um, it, it, you know, is there a decent chance that literally some sort of financial instability event uh, could be what actually forces the Fed to pivot versus the time it takes to start seeing employment numbers uh, go up, unemployment numbers go up. Because as you know, uh, unemployment as the Fed measures it is, is a very lagging indicator. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the what it, uh, things happen in the capital markets and the stock market first, and then they happen to the real economy. And then last thing to happen is the labor market. So uh, uh, plotting Fed policy by watching the unemployment rate is like steering a car by staring in the rearview mirror. Right. Um, and uh, of course, yes, uh, I think it. Warren Buffett famously said, we get to see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. Uh, and the, the, the tide, of course, in his uh, uh, pithy uh, uh, <clears throat> analogy is uh, liquidity. And those swimming naked are people who are over levered. And uh, we've already seen the first one, which is the uh, levered um, uh, LDI uh, or uh, liability driven investing policies of UK corporate uh, uh, pension funds. Um, so there's already on a global scale, there's already been uh, uh, um, some some casualties. Um, and 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 of course, there's some you know uh, uh, 
countries that are having horrible problems. I mean, uh, Sri Lanka's uh, basically in default. And um, so, the, yeah, there will be others um, as, as this tightening cycle proceeds. Um, you know, anybody can go on the Google and, and, and read lots of people's pronostications as to where that might be. Uh, you know, people worry about ETFs. People still worry about uh, 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 money market funds. Uh, people worry about um, the bank loan market. People worry about the shadow banking system and private credit. Uh, you could throw in there uh, uh, university endowments that are going to need to be pulling money out of liquid assets to continue to make their capital calls from private funds that uh, 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 suddenly are larger allocations than they might have anticipated once everything gets marked down at the end of the year. Um, and who knows how many other people have done similar things, get themselves a little overextended in, in, in risky assets and long uh, maturity illiquid assets funded by low cost short term debt. Uh, uh, we'll find out. All right. So I guess where I'm going with this is um, so if, if if I can interpret your words there, the answer is, yeah, there very well could be a financial instability event that forces the Fed to pivot before, you know, unemployment may force it to. Um, but I think we'll get both, right? We'll have financial instability as well as rising unemployment. And when right. you have the two together, the Fed is not going to continue to pursue its restrictive policy all the way to get to 2% inflation. Right, right. It, sort of, it, yes, they're not mutually exclusive. All I was saying is, is it probably could take months, maybe quarters for the Fed to get to a point of, of discomfort around unemployment where something could happen sooner that may be big enough that the Fed has to say, ah, you know, I want to keep hiking, but I can't. I got to address this thing that that this new crisis that just erupted because I broke it. Um, so yeah. there's the risk of financial instability. Um, uh, we are. It looks like you know heading into recession, as you you've already said, and people can intelligently debate whether we're in one already or not, or what the definition is or whatever. But I think we can look at the current trends and say. Economic growth is slowing. It's likely to slow even further with the hikes and tightening that the Fed and many other central banks are pursuing right now. Um, we've already had a bad year in the capital markets. Uh, TBD where they go from here, but there's certainly a good argument to be made for additional margin compression. Um, we have earnings estimates that are still pretty rosy uh, looking out that, that many people think need to be brought down, which then should bring prices down further. Um, we have a housing market that is rolling over because of these higher mortgage rates that have more than doubled, uh, maybe even on their way to tripling over the past you know, 15 months or so. Uh, we may have layoffs, as you were just talking about. So there's a lot of things that could, could continue just to sort of pull everything down here. Um, <clears throat> when you kind of look out with your, your macro goggles here, um, what do you think is more likely from a from a macroeconomic standpoint over the next year or so? You know, are we going to really see a proper recession arise? Are we going to see this sort of downward gravitational pull, or am I painting too bleak of a picture here? My central tendency is uh, stagflation, meaning we're going to have a recession. Um, how deep? I I don't know. Um, it, it it might 
be contingent on your point about uh, financial instability. Uh, if we, if, and which is entirely uh, uh, plausible, uh, the the tightening that is yet to come pushes us into further uh, uh, financial instability. Um, we could see the Fed uh, backtrack well before it's made much of any progress. And, and let's let's face it. As of right now, it's made no progress on reducing inflation, right? I mean, it, it's it's tightened a lot, and we all understand that there are long lead times. So we expect and you know hope that there's going to be a reduction in inflation, and it makes perfect sense because you know that's that that happens a year or so after the tightening happens. So you know you would expect that there's some, but we haven't seen it yet, right? There's no right, there's we're, nothing we're still in at 8.2 as of the last readout. Yeah, yeah, and the core numbers, which are probably the better things to look at, are continuing to run at five or six and they're and they're kind of creeping up from five to six um they probably would uh, uh it, it, depending on how large the uh, uh financial instability is they would pause uh and 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 fail to make the necessary progress on inflation and i think that's what's going to happen whether it's uh a big financial instability event or just an intolerable uh, a month after month torture of people getting laid off and, and the unemployment rate rising, or as is very, very plausible. And I just said, those both can happen together. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that what we're going to see is stag inflate stagflation, meaning we're going to have a recession. I think that's much greater than 50% probability. I read a silly article on Bloomberg that said Bloomberg economists say there's a hundred percent probability of inflation. 100%. Yep. <laughs> that's silly. Now that might, be how they calibrated their model, but that doesn't mean it's true. It's not 100%. Nothing, like nothing in our business is 100% probability. But I think it's better, considerably better than even odds that we're going to have a recession in 2023. Um, could be in 2024, too. Um, and I think we're going to have high inflation, higher than 2% inflation. Uh, 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 you know, is it, is it, yeah, I would say mid single digits. Hopefully it's only three or four instead of five or six. But, you know, we're going to have elevated inflation uh, at, and a recession at the same time is more likely than not. OK. All right. So a lot of people, you know, hearing that that prognostication are probably thinking, ah, that's stinks. That's kind of the worst of both worlds. Um, so now let's get to the where the rubber meets the road. So you're a person who just doesn't have um, the comfort of just being able to have an opinion out there. You actually have to manage capital and a lot of it based upon your outlook. So um, I guess what's your market outlook at this point, given the macro outlook that you just shared? Um, answer it any way you like, but I'm, I'm guessing you know most people are wondering, all right, Chris, well, we've seen a bear market this year. Uh, does that mean it's not over yet? You know, probabilistically, if we have those shoes that still remain to drop here. So we use a multi-layered approach to developing our investment strategy. One is we start from the principle that I described to you uh, earlier, which is a much more broadly diversified portfolio is a better place to start from as sort of a long-term uh, portfolio. So instead of saying we'll have 60% of S&P 500 and 40% of 
you know, Bloomberg aggregate bond index, uh, we'd say, no, that's not very diversified. That's really only two asset classes. Let's have a whole bunch of asset classes and have more nearly equally weighted allocations to them, including U.S. stocks, both large and small, and international stocks, both developed and uh, emerging, as well as uh, inflation-sensitive asset classes, including REITs, commodities, uh, TIPS, as well as a broad diversification in bonds, not not just high quality bonds, but also high yield bonds and emerging market bonds, uh, throw in some other interesting things like MLPs. So start from a very broadly diversified portfolio, including a reasonable allocation to uh, inflation hedging asset classes or real assets. Then adjust that for where yields are or where prices are. I mean, prices and yields are the same thing, right? You know, uh, 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 if you're a bond trader, you might say that uh, uh, the 10-year note is trading, you know, at, you know, 98 and 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 330 seconds. But the, uh, uh, the, the, the rest of us just uh, say uh, the bond mark, the 10-year the note's trading at a 4% yield. You know, for any particular security, a yield and a price just go together. And a yield is just a more easy accessible and easy to understand way of talking about prices. So when I'm when I'm talking about we look at where prices are in the market, we say what's yielding a lot more than it usually does, and what's yielding a lot more than it, it usually does relative to all the other opportunities. Uh, and let's uh, adjust those weights of starting with having about an equal amount in all of these different risky asset classes. Let's skew the portfolio to the higher yielding things, the lower priced, the more attractive future return uh, opportunities. Um, so then uh, uh, we uh, then overlay a lot of tactical signals that are much shorter horizon. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about those because they're no good to your investors because then I'd have to come on and tell you next week how our tactical signals had changed. And so okay. just okay. about the time somebody would trade on one of my tactical advices, we're doing the other thing. So I'm not going to talk about short-term uh, tactical trading. I'm just going to talk about sort of long-term positioning. Uh, and there... Um, for the reasons that I just described of where I think we're headed in the macro environment, I think you want more of the inflation hedging sort of uh, uh, asset classes. Um, uh, and, and, and you can do this inside of uh, asset classes as well as across asset classes. But across asset classes, you know, tips are looking a lot better. We've got positive real yields now. Isn't that nice, right? You know, some teams people think about tips as you know, well, I should get in and out of tips based upon inflation. Please understand that changes in inflation are the thing that absolutely has no effect on tips. Tips are real yields, right? What happens? What what you want to pay attention to with tips is the level of real yields. When real yields are negative, why would you want to own tips? That's a horrible thing to do. Real yields have gotten positive. Are they going to get more positive? Well, they certainly could, but they're already nicely positive. You know, one and a half percent real yield on a ten-year tip. Um, so there, 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 there. That's not something to have a little more of in the portfolio. I think REITs probably a little more of in the portfolio. Commodities is something to have more of in the portfolio. What, what, what would you do inside of the equity market? Um, now, if you uh, want to express your values by having an ESG portfolio, you wouldn't want to do that, and I respect that. But 
from an investment strategy standpoint, uh, I think uh, oil stocks pretty darn cheap. Uh, and if the scenario that I'm describing comes to pass, they'll probably have many, many, many future years of uh, outperformance. Uh, and uh, I'd still be a little wary of the uh, FANG stocks. Their, their prices are down a lot, but the level of their prices is still pretty darn high. Uh, and they tend to uh, be very interest rate sensitive, uh, at least uh, uh, they are when they're extraordinarily uh, uh, priced for future growth. So favor value, favor energy in your uh, 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 equity portfolios. And then very importantly, recognize the bargains that are available around the rest of the world. The U.S., you know, we've, we've, we've traded off a bit, but if we look at the cyclically adjusted P.E., uh, Schiller's famous uh, construct to say, don't look at the current PE because earnings are so volatile that it doesn't tell you very much. If you want a metric that forecasts long-term future returns, use a cyclically adjusted PE, the 10-year average of real earnings per share divided by the current price, um, uh, or the price divided by the earnings. I, I kind of like to think of it as the earnings divided by the price because that gets you yield terms. And, and I already mm -hmm. told you why I think yields are more informative. Um, we're at 26. You know, After all the declines we've had, we're at 26 for the US market. That's the multiple, the, the cyclically adjusted PE multiple of the US market. The UK is at 13. It's half off, it's a bargain. Really, it's like 50% cheaper than the US. And it's not an outlier. Uh, uh, you can buy uh, a BMW for like mid single digits forward PE multiple. Uh, 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 there are there are wonderful bargains, and 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 emerging markets are cheap too. But the developed XUS markets are just as cheap as the emerging markets. So uh, uh, you maybe get similar levels of prices in emerging and developed XUS markets, but you don't get similar levels of risk. You know, I'll remind people that very recently, this year, we all had to write down all of our Russian securities. If you were if you were an investor in a in a in a in a emerging market index fund, you wrote down to zero every single Russian instrument in you know every security. There is sovereign risk investing in um, emerging markets, not just Russia. There's probably some risk investing in China too, uh, uh, even mm -hmm. India, uh, uh, Mexico, Turkey. Uh, uh, but you don't have to do so. You can invest in places like Germany and the UK and Canada and Australia and Japan, and you can get uh, a half off uh, 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 prices relative to the US. Not India. That's actually an outlier on being quite expensive. But generally speaking, uh, 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 um, uh, non-U.S. equities are like 50% off sale relative to U.S. equities. All right. Um, that is uh, fascinating and, and a great point. So you kind of get, you know, the G7 XUS on sale, you know, right now. Um, and um, I don't know if we've actually tracked that uh, this closely before on this program. So you just gave our viewers something really new to look at here, which is great. Oh, and uh, uh, I'm sorry for the... Just a little bit of a, I wouldn't even call it a commercial advertisement. It's a, it's an offer of a free tool. If you want to know 
what's the Schiller PE multiple of this or that uh, uh, market? Uh, you can go to researchaffiliates.com and look at our asset allocation interactive website, which is free, doesn't, doesn't cost you anything. And you can look up forward-looking expected returns. You can look at Schiller PE multiples. You can look at the yields, et cetera. It's just a fun little tool that we offer uh, 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 for free on our website. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Interrupt me anytime for, for resources like that. And when you say Schiller PEs, you're, you're talking about the, the CAPE, right? The, the secular adjusted. Yeah. Synonym. Sometimes people call it a Schiller PE. Sometimes people call it a CAPE or a cyclically adjusted PE. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, look, um, uh, thank you. You did a great job of, of outlining you know, a lot of specifics for folks to look into here. Since you said commodities, you talked about inflation protection. I just got to ask real quickly, um, any particular thoughts on gold one way or the other? Um, we've got a number of folks that come on this program that have talked about it um, from a bunch of different uh, perspectives. Um, it does no, seem I, to have- I, I don't include it. Look, uh, I, I told you where I start with, you know, diversified collection of uh, 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 asset classes. And for me, gold is not an asset class. Gold is a metal. Uh, you can think of it as a commodity, I suppose. You can call it a, a currency if you wish, but asset classes generally provide long-term positive future returns. Gold right. does it has no not. yield. It has no yield. It pays no yeah. coupon, no dividend, no rent. It just sits there unproductively sitting there. Now, does that mean that everybody's crazy who uses it to get some diversification in their portfolio? No, it's fine. That's fine. That's, I, I, I'm interested in generating increases in my wealth over time. Uh, and, well, and, and gold just doesn't do that. It's like volatility with no mean positive return. Okay. Um, you know. Kind of like Bitcoin. Well, it's certain both have not performed as the proponents thought they would this year, which is sort of the spirit behind this question, which is when you talk about inflation protection, there are a lot of uh, capital managers out there that do hold gold for that reason alone, but it hasn't really materialized this year. Um, any particular and, and, reason and, and, on why not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 my mom. Many years ago, I was managing the University of Virginia Endowment as the CEO of the University of Virginia Investment Management Company. And I wanted, I was working when I first got there to educate my board about how to create a long-term uh, uh, investment target, not how to do tactical management, how to think about things over the long run. And we did an educational session on real assets. And I invited, a professor from Duke University named Campbell Harvey to come up and be part of this uh, discussion. We had experts on real estate and um, and other uh, real real asset strategies, but I invested Cam to come up because he had written what I really consider to be the seminal paper on commodity investing, um, and. Uh, Cam is now uh, on my board and a partner in research affiliates. Uh, uh, and Cam later wrote uh, 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 an article um, that explained why gold is not an effective inflation hedge. 
it's because its short-term volatility is way too high to provide any kind of certainty of it's going to be a hedge for anything over a period of a year or two or three or five. Now, if you want to, you can go and you can do these analyses and say, look, gold maintains its value over the centuries. And if you've got a centuries horizon, right? If you're investing for, I don't know, you're, you're like some stupendously wealthy family that imagines that, you know, the, that family members are going to be, you know, continuing to live off of your accumulated capital 300 years from now. I would agree gold may uh, uh, hold its uh, relative value 300 years in the future. I don't know how you would actually have that con conviction, but it has in the past, right? If you look at centuries, uh, gold maintains its value. But if you look at periods of a year, two, three, five, it is so volatile that uh, uh, you, you, and it is not all that correlated with inflation. Uh, it's just huge volatility. Long run, it, it holds, it has in the past held its value, but it's so volatile that it doesn't do you any good. Uh, and, and again, read uh, uh, a cam and and I probably neglected to say Claude Herb uh, was Cam's collaborator and co-author on both the seminal commodities paper and the paper on gold that explains why gold is not an inflation hedge. Um, and 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 the same applies to cryptocurrencies. Way too volatile to give you any confidence that it's going to be a near-term inflation hedge. All right. Um, well, look. Thanks so much for that 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 feedback. And again, you know, a big part of the value of this discussion is, um, you know, we have lots of lots of topics that we bat around back and forth on this program as as retail investors. Um, a lot of the price action, though, is set with the, the the big investors and the institutional side that are moving, you know, the really big amounts of money out there. And you're giving us a glimpse as to how those folks think. So as we begin to wrap things up here, Chris, um, first off, thank you for all the specificity you've shared here. It's been really valuable. Um, is there any other sort of bit of parting advice that you'd have for the average retail investor who's digesting the macro issues we just talked about? It's just sort of heard your, your market outlook here as well trying to prepare for this potential stagflationary environment that it looks like we're heading into. Um, any other parting bits of advice for them and to just sort of helping them be good stewards, good prudent stewards of protecting and hopefully trying to grow their wealth through what's coming? Starting price matters. Um, too many people, particularly in the retail space, use unconditional expectations to set up their portfolios. And an unconditional expectation is, in this context, the long-term history of returns. So you can look at the long-term average return of the stock market or the long-term average return of the bond market or the long-term average of inflation, et cetera. And that's that important information. It's good information. But how you can greatly improve is to say, well, what has been the outcomes over history conditioning on today's starting point? So you might look at the long-term average return of bonds and say it was 6%, but if you're starting at a 2% bond yield, it makes no sense to assume you're gonna get a 6% 
yield 6% return on your portfolio when you're buying bonds at 2%, mm -hmm. or that long-term average real interest rates were 2%. Therefore, if I invest in tips, I should assume that I'll get a real return of 2%. Well, no, if you're buying tips at a negative uh, 1% real interest rate, you should not expect that they're going to return to you 2% at yields. The same is true of equities. If the average PE multiple in the equity market has been 15 and you're buying at 30, don't assume that you're going to get the long-term average return of the stock market uh, 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 when it was priced at 15 on average when you're paying 30. So pay attention to conditional expectations, conditional on today's starting prices. And to make that actionable, value is where you should be tilted in your equity portfolio today. Yes, values outperformed nicely for a short time, but it underperformed by an enormous magnitude since the global financial crisis. And value is very cheap relative to growth from today's starting conditions. So from today's starting conditions, it's highly likely that value strategies are going to outperform uh, growth strategies just based on sensible conditional expectations, which means when value stocks were priced at the discount they are today relative to growth stocks at all periods in the future, how did things work out? And how things worked out was over three to five year future horizon valued strongly outperforms. All right, great. So in some ways you could say that today's lower prices from where we started the year um, and perhaps even future lower prices, if the bear market still has, has room to play out here, um, in some ways is a gift to those that have dry powder to deploy and those that have a dependable income that they can just be using over time to do a lot of the dollar cost averaging that we were talking about at the beginning. Saving and, and averaging in, right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, look, Chris, uh, thank you so much for your time and your insights here. For people that have really enjoyed getting to know you through this conversation, it would like to be able to follow you and your work. Where should, should they go? Uh, researchaffiliates.com. All right. That's pretty simple. Are you on uh, Twitter or any social media as well? Uh, our firm is on Twitter. Um, uh, I the, personally uh, am, am, am not on Twitter. I'm not. Uh, do, you, do you know your firm's Twitter handle? Gosh, I am. No worries. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. So when, when we edit this, I'll put up both the URL to research affiliates and your firm's Twitter handle here on the screen so that folks can go follow uh, if they want to. All right. Well, just in wrapping up, folks, um, I want to just remind everybody that we're continuing our new practice of uh, my uh, taking note of my key takeaways from these interviews. I'm doing that with this interview with Chris. Uh, if you want to get those for free, just go to wealthion.com slash Adam's Notes. And Chris and I talked a, a lot about both the, the, the complicated and challenging macro environment that's here uh, and, and uh, strategies to put into practice. Um, I'll just reiterate what I say in this channel all the time, which is in, unless you are a highly experienced investor, and Chris made a really good case at the beginning of this video that almost nobody has the experience for the type of market that we're in here. Um, highly recommend that you um, build your investing plan working with the guidance of a professional financial advisor who understands and appreciates the trends and topics that Chris and I talked about here. If you have a good one, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion of one who does, feel free to talk to one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. 
totally free. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service they offer uh, to do that. Set up one of those meetings. It only takes you a couple seconds. Just go to Wealthion.com. Uh, and uh, if you have enjoyed this discussion with Chris, you'd like to see more really big institutional investors like him come share their insights with us on this program, please do us a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Chris, again, can't thank you enough. Uh, thanks so much and look forward to having you back on the program again in the future if you're willing to come back on. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me.